Hey there and welcome to the Duncan Pentecostal Church podcast streaming from Vancouver Island here in Canada. And however you have found our podcast, we're so glad you're here. Before we jump into today's message, just a couple things I want to let you know. If you go to our website, www.duncanchurch.com, you're going to find a couple easy ways where you can connect with us. We have an online connect card you can fill out. Maybe let us know where you're listening from and check off the option to receive our what's happening email we send this out once a week it's a great way to stay connected with everything that's going on here at the church and even online apart from that there is a give button so if you're feeling led you can do that right online through our website you can also find us on facebook and youtube we are so glad you're tuning in and we are believing that god's going to do something special in you through today's message enjoy How many of you remember King Charles' coronation? We're all alive for that one. King Charles was recently coronated as king, right? You guys know who I'm talking about here? Yeah, did anybody actually watch the coronation? Two? Two people, that's it? Wow. Did you guys stay up actually and watch it, or did you watch it the next day, the next, next morning or whatever? Yeah, yeah. Anybody, so I, I was going to ask if anyone didn't see it. I, I, obviously, the rest of us didn't see anything to do with it, so... None of us really. So, I mean, obviously, King Charles isn't maybe quite as um, interesting to all of us as Canadians, perhaps. I don't know. But I would ask you this. What if you were to get a letter stating that King Charles was coming to your house? That'd be kind of cool. He's going to be coming to your house. What would you do? How would you prepare if the king literally was going to come to your house? How many of you would clean your house? Anybody clean their house? Some of you are like, nah, I don't care. I'm still not going to. I didn't watch him. I'm not going to clean my house either. I don't care. Maybe some of you might get changed. You might change your clothes. Or you might remove maybe some... Maybe some offensive items in your house towards the king. I have no idea. So maybe some embarrassing things. I don't know. Um, so, you know, so far, we're, so we're as a church been studying the book of Zechariah together. And we've seen this remnant that has returned from their Babylonian captivity to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple and to rebuild the city. We've actually seen five visions so far in the book of Zechariah in one night. Remember, these all took place during one night. And these, these five visions that we've seen so far were, were really to encourage the people. They were encouraged, the, the, the remnant, this 42,000 Israelites that had returned to Jerusalem to keep on with the building, to get on with the building, really to, 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 to say basically God's grace is upon you. Get back to work. Uh, we're going to see, though, that the night visions are going to end. We're going to finish the night visions this morning with the final three visions, all right? And so the final three visions, though, they're not so much of an encouragement, perhaps, to get the job done. These visions are going to be more about preparing them for the coming king, the king and his kingdom that is going to come. We're actually going to look at chapters 5 and 6 this morning. Believe me, uh, we're, we're not going to be too long in it. They're kind of, they're not the longest, and so we'll get through them. But these two chapters really culminate in a prophecy, in a future look at the king that is to come. And kind of like, how many of you know who, um, maybe you, you, you aren't so interested in, so some of you didn't see anything to do with King Charles, but how many of you know who Prince Humperdinck is? Put up your hand and know who Prince Humperdinck is. Yeah, look at that. You guys are more interested in Prince Humperdinck than you are in King Charles. Yes. Prince Humperdinck was from Princess, Princess Bride. Bride, of course. Yes. So there's the true, the true prince, of course, that we need to watch. If you remember, if you remember with Prince Humperdinck, do you remember what he wanted to do before the night of his wedding? He wanted the thieves' forest cleared out, right before his wedding. And that's kind of what we're going to see this morning. Before, before the king shows up, God wants to clean things up before his coming. That's kind of what we're going to see 
in these next three visions in Zechariah. He's going to clean things up before his coming and before he sets up his kingdom. So why don't you this morning open your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, there's Bibles all around you in the seats. And you need a Bible to follow along. It's much easier, especially because we're going through two chapters this morning. I'm going to be reading and preaching from the English Standard Version this morning. So grab your Bibles and, um, and let's, um, let's actually pray before we look at preparations for the king. Why don't we pray? Father, this morning I ask that you would teach us. Lord, that you would open our eyes uh, to see these, the things that you want to do. Even last week as we looked at not by might nor by power, but by your spirit. Lord, we thank you that it's by your working in our lives that we can accomplish the tasks that you have called us to do. That we can live this life only in your power and in your strength. And so bless our time. Even this morning, I invite your Holy Spirit to come and to speak and to teach and to lead us as we study the scriptures together. We love you. We bless your name. And we thank you for this time. Amen. Uh, if you're looking for Zechariah, simply go to uh, find the Gospel of Matthew. It's probably the easiest way to find it. And then go backwards. Uh, you'll hit Malachi. And then right before Malachi is Zechariah. So the first preparation that we're going to see in prepar- preparation for the king and his kingdom, the first preparation we will see is cleaning house. Cleaning house. So this is the first thing that we're going to be looking at this morning. Last week, some of you were with us, some of you weren't. Last week, we looked, at, we looked at that famous passage, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And in it, if you remember, there was a vision. What was the vision of? It's olive trees. What else was there? There was a central item, a lampstand, the menorah. We talked about this. And if you remember last week, we talked about this menorah, this lamp that was in the vision that, um, that normally would have been, I, I mentioned this, it was a very tedious task that the priests in the, in the temple, in the holy place, was the only light for the holy place. And every day, morning and evening, seven days a week, they would have to tend to this lamp because it was never to go out. And so that would require them trimming the wick and filling the oil twice a day. Every day they'd have to do this. Last week, of course, we looked at how this lamp, how this vision that God gave was that the oil would be, this, remember this automated, automatic menorah, the oil would be continually poured into the lamp, not by might nor by power, not by, not by the many, not by the few, Right? That's what the whole thing, if we look at it last week. Uh, but by my spirit, God said. He says, I will pour out my spirit unending. It's interesting because we didn't really look at the trimming of the wick. Right? I mentioned that. There's the trimming of the wick and the pouring in of the oil. Well, that's kind of where God's going to get this morning. We're going to be doing some wick trimming. Because how many of you know that oftentimes we'll say, God, I need you to fill me. I need your strength. But sometimes the problem is that we're already full. We're full of things that maybe need to be trimmed out of our lives. It's a little bit of what's going to happen this morning as we look at these final three visions. So chapter 5 begins in verse 1. He says, Again, I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a flying scroll. So, so remember last week he was awoken in the night? Do you remember this? He was, he was woken up, kind of startled, to see another vision. That was, of course, the vision of the lampstand with the olive trees. Well, it's just, he's still awake. He hasn't got to go to back to sleep yet, and he has another vision. This time of a flying scroll, not to be mistaken with a flying squirrel, but a flying scroll. Flying scroll is actually a dance move that I created, which you will never, ever see. Only my wife knows what it is, and my kids. They're the only ones that have the privilege. Uh, Verse 2 goes on. And he said to me, what do you see? I answered, I see a flying scroll. Its length is 20 cubits, and its width 10 cubits. Now, a cubit, just to bring you up to speed here, a cubit was about a foot and a half. So this scroll that's flying through the air is about 30 feet long by about 15 feet high. It's about the size of the scroll that's flying through the air. I don't know how, how many of you remember, I remember as a kid being maybe at the beach or different places, and would you, do you remember seeing a plane 
flying through the sky, pulling a banner behind it. Picture that kind of, the, the, you know, it'd be classic, it'd be like, Andrea, marry me, Peter, kind of thing, you know, like, it's not how I propose, but, but that's the kind of things you would see on this, like, people would, like, make announcements on it, or there'd be advertisements, you know, it's like, Dairy Queen, you know, and they'd have, like, a thing, like, two-for-one blizzards, kind of thing. How many wants a, bl- I want a blizzard now. I would love a blizzard. Yeah, there's a few hands going up. You don't watch the King's Coronation, but you'll take a blizzard. Well, that's kind of what's happening. This is flying through the air, but this advertisement. Um, but, but here's what I want you to think about. How many, you know the signs coming into Duncan here? The signs coming into town, the billboard signs on the highway? Picture those, but now picture this flying scroll is, is not quite, but almost twice the size of some of those signs. So this is a big, big, big sign, very visible. So what's on the scroll? Well, let's see. Verse 3 tells us, Then he said to me, This is the curse that goes out over the face of the whole land. For everyone who steals shall be cleaned out according to what is on one side. And everyone who swears falsely shall be cleaned out according to what is on the other side. Essentially, this is advertising the sins of the people. That's kind of what's going on here. It's advertising the sins of the people and God's judgment on their disobedience. It's kind of like a billboard advertising your sin. How many would love something like that? How, you know, like, like the, this is even worse. This is worse because it, it's, it's not just sitting outside the town on, on the highway, but it's actually flying through the air for everybody to see it. Everyone sees and knows what you did. You see, God was calling them, calling them to rebuild his temple. This is what we talked about last week. He was calling them to rebuild his temple, but he didn't just want to rebuild his temple. He also wanted to rebuild his people, right? And we learned about that, a people that represented him. And so that really, what it meant was dealing with their garbage, dealing with the sin that was in their lives, that was, that, that, that as he says here, he, he was going to be cleaning it out, right? They knew, they knew the commands of God. They knew that there was blessings if you obeyed and there was curses if you disobeyed. If you remember, we talked, I think in Exodus, we talked about that, the, the two mountains, and they would actually talk back and forth about the blessings for obedience and the curses for disobedience. And God's saying, you haven't obeyed, so here come the curses. And so what is God going to do? Look at verse 4. He says, I will send it out, the scroll, declares the Lord of hosts, and it shall enter the house of the thief and the house of him who swears falsely by my name. And it shall remain in his house and consume it, both timber and stones. This isn't good news. (laughs) This is bad news. You see, God had given them commands, and they, they knew what they were, but much like today, I think the only command they really worried about was thou shalt not get caught, right? That's kind of how we sometimes think about it. As long as I don't get caught, I, can get, I get away with it. It's okay. That's not what God says here. He says it will find you. In fact, Numbers 32, 23 reminds us of that. It says, be sure your sin will find you out. How many, you should memorize that verse. That's a great encouraging verse to memorize. That's a scary verse, is it not? Be sure your sin will find you out. And God warns them. He says this flying scroll, you may think you can get away with that. It's going to find you. It's going to find you. It's going to find what you did. You can't hide. And if, if people choose to walk opposed to God's ways, there will be judgment on their house. That's what he's declaring. And it's a little bit scary perhaps for us because, because the truth is this, is we all have a, do you know this? You all have a scroll. Do you know that? You all have a scroll with your sins written out on it. All of us do. It's on the billboard. I've seen it. I haven't actually seen it. Wouldn't that be horrible if you came into town and it's like you're driving into town and all of a sudden you see the sign that says Peter and it starts listing you things you've done? It'd be like, ah, you've just like 
drive off the road and whatever you do, you know, it's like, but essentially that's what's happening here. And we do have that. We have a scroll because the reality is nobody's perfect, right? Nobody here is perfect. All have sinned. That's what the Bible tells us. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The standard that God has set, nobody can meet, nobody can make it. And Romans 6.23, you know this, it tells us what? It says, it says, and the wages for that sin is what? Death. The payment that you receive for your sin, the scroll that's been written out with all the wrong things you've done is death. But you know what's so great is that verse doesn't finish there. Don't ever let that verse stop there. The wages of sin is death. Because it goes on to say something else. But, it says, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, Colossians 2.14 tells us this. I have the verse for you. It says that in Christ, he, meaning God, canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. Do you know what that's telling us? That's saying that your billboard, your scroll of all the wrongs that you have done have been nailed to the cross of Jesus. They've been nailed with, with Jesus on that cross. How many of you are thankful that your billboard has been taken down? Okay, there's three of us that are really, I'm really thankful. Maybe you guys are all pretty good. I'm, I'm super thankful that my sin has been paid for in Christ, that it's been nailed to the cross. I no longer have to pay the price for that. And I no longer have to even, I no longer even have to let that define my life or be embarrassed by it. It's been paid for in Jesus. You know, and we can all be made clean today through the work of Jesus Christ and through his work alone. Christ is coming again, and, and the Bible's clear. He tells us that in his kingdom, he will put an end to sin. That's what he's getting at here. The king is coming again, and the reality is, is that in his kingdom, only those can remain that are clean. That's why he's cleaning it out. But what I love is that at his first coming, he's coming again at a second coming. At his first coming, he dealt with the sin issue. He made a way for us for us to be clean. So this vision, the, the sixth vision now of Zechariah, it dealt with the sinner. That's kind of what was going on here. The next vision will deal with the sin. And so the second preparation that we see for the king is removing sin. The first was cleaning house. Now we're going to see the removing of sin. Verse 5 gives us Zechariah, Zechariah's seventh vision. It says, Then the angel who talked with me came forward and said to me, Lift your eyes and see what, is go see what this is, sorry, yeah, see what this is that is going out. And I said, what is it? He said, this is the basket. Literally in the Hebrew, it says, there's probably a little footnote in your Bibles that says ephah. It just says ephah. This is the ephah that is going out. An ephah, an ephah was a specific unit of measurement. It was a basket of a specific size. It was actually about the size of like our five-gallon pails. So it was about that big. That's about how big the basket was. And this was a unit of measurement for commerce. They used it to measure all kinds of things, such as grain or different things that they'd be buying and selling. That's what it was. So that's what he sees. And then verse 6 continues. And he said, This is their iniquity or their sin, some translations say, in all the land. And behold, the leaden cover was lifted, and there was a woman sitting inside the basket. <laughs> it's kind of like a genie in the bottle, I guess. And he said, verse 8, This is wickedness. And he thrust her back into the basket and thrust down the leaden weight on its opening. She was a real basket case, I guess. Yeah, you like that one? It's Father's Day next Sunday, so in honor of Father's Day, I'm getting ready with some dad jokes. So. <laughs> uh, by the way, I need to just mention here, um, the Hebrew word for wickedness is in the feminine. Okay, so Hebrew has, of course, um, there's, there's uh, masculine and feminine, and, and the Hebrew word for wickedness is in the feminine. And so that's, many scholars think that's why um, wickedness here is personified by a woman. 
Okay, so just, just to be aware there, it's not that women are wicked, all right? Just, just to be clear. Uh, but the reality is, before, here's what we need to understand. Before Israel went into captivity, uh, what, what did they do for a living? What were, what were Israelites known for? We have some of them in our congregation. Farming. They were farmers. That's what Israel was. They, were, they, were, um, they, they lived off agriculture. They're an agrarian society. That's what they did. Okay, they were farmers. But when they went into Babylon, they were taken into Babylon. Do you know what? They learned that they weren't farmers anymore. They had to learn a new way of living. And they learned a number of different arts, really. They learned the art of banking and of finance, of commerce, of trade. And they became very good at those things, very successful. Uh, in fact, it was one of the reasons that so few Jews actually returned with the remnant to come back to Jerusalem because, well, because Babylon was good business. It's actually one of the reasons that only 42,000 of about the 2 to 3 million that went into captivity returned. They were doing so well, prospering. It was good business in Babylon. But the problem was that Babylon actually wasn't good business, if you know what I mean. Right? It wasn't good. Kind of like our world today. That it was all about the mighty dollar. The bottom line is that people weren't important. Money was important. And I want to be clear here. Listen, it's not a sin to make money. It's not a sin to have money. It's not. It, money is, is amoral. It's neither good nor bad. It's what we do with it, and it's how we allow it to motivate our lives that makes it good or evil. But money itself is not good or evil. In fact, we need money. We need business. We need commerce. We need an economy. How many of you work a job? Anybody here work a job? Man, a whole bunch of you don't even work. It's crazy. I don't know. There's something wrong with your arms today or, you know, we have jobs because of an economy. It's good. I'm thankful that we have an economy, that we, are, we live in a country where we can work. So it's, it's good. It's good that we have these things. But here's the thing. When money becomes more important than people, there is nothing that is more opposed to the heart of God than that. Nothing. I mean, you think about it. Think about the only two things that are eternal in this world. What are the only two things that are eternal? The Word of God. That's what Jesus told us. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my Word will never fail. The Bible, the Word of God is eternal. Do you know the other thing that is eternal? Souls, us, people. The only two things. Everything else is going to go. Only the Word of God and people are eternal. And so people are very important to God. So important, in fact, that He gave His life. He gave His life to reconcile all people unto Himself. And so this woman that's in this basket that represents wickedness and sin in Jerusalem with this, this kind of focus on greed, if you will, or, or focus on money, uh, with God thrusting her back into the basket, saying, listen, I don't want your influence anymore, and saying, and, I, and I'm going to judge you, is essentially what, what's going on here. He pushes her back in. It shows us how he feels about that. In fact, look at what he does next in verse 9. Then I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, two women coming forward. The wind was in their wings. They had wings like the wings of a stork, and they lifted up the basket between earth and heaven. I wonder if this is where we got the idea of storks delivering babies. I have no idea, but perhaps, I don't know. But they're, they're delivering, a, not a baby, but a basket. That's what they're doing. They're de- and it's a basket with a woman in it. It's weird. Either way, what's the picture that's going on here is that God is removing sin from the land. That's what he's doing. He's, mer- he's supernaturally taking the sin and getting rid of it and getting rid of its influence from the land of Jerusalem. Verse 10, and then he says this, Then I said to the angel who talked with me, Where are they taking the basket? He said to me, to the land of Shinar, which is just simply another name for Babylon. Um, if, if you've read Genesis, uh, you would know, who was the founder of Babylon? Going back to Genesis. In the plains of Shinar, there was a certain man. 
Interesting name. It starts with an N. Who said it? Yeah, yeah. Nimrod. Nimrod. Nimrod was, so this was a very wicked man, really. Um, and he founded Babylon. He was the one that basically found, in the plains of Shinar, he founded the city Babylon. That was very opposed to the ways of God. It's kind of the first pagan city, in a sense, that Scripture kind of tells us about, that was, that was like diametrically opposed to what God's, God was about. Like literally in his face, like I want to be opposite to God. And so he says, he says to me, they're taking this basket to the land of Shinar to build a house or a temple for it. And when this is prepared, they will set the basket down there on its base or pedestal, other translations say. So, the, so he says they're taking this basket to a temple where it will be placed on a pedestal. W- what would that be for? What's the purpose? Worship. He said, I'm, I'm, t- I'm getting rid of it. He said, I'm taking wickedness and greed that he's saying has no place in, in the, the life of, of anybody in Jerusalem or in the life of a believer, of course. And he's returning it to where it originated. Where it all originated was Babylon, where it's worship. That's what he's doing. You see, God had, God had gotten his people out of Babylon, but now he needed to get Babylon out of his people. That's what he's doing here. And in so many ways, I think it's, it's much the same for the church, that we can so easily start to adopt the ways of this world, of Babylon. Babylon's often equated to the world that we live in today. That's the battle that's going on, that Babylon is so badly trying to form and shape us into its way of thinking, its way of doing business, its way of doing life. I remember years ago when I was a youth pastor, and we went through this, this program was called Quest, which is now Youth Alpha. And I remember um, in one of the things they were talking about how this was, I mean, when was I a youth pastor? A number of years ago. So this is like probably 20 years ago that we were doing this series. And I remember at that point, cell phones weren't really huge yet. They were like, you know, I mean, if you had a cell phone, it was on your car with a big antenna sticking out kind of thing, right? No one had, or if it was attached with a big long cord to your car, right? You know, just no one walked around with cell phones at that point. And I remember at that time, they were talking about that over, at that point, over 3,000 messages a day bombard us with what to think, with what to buy, with, with what to worship, essentially. This is how you are to look and to live your life. That was then, 20 years ago. I can't imagine what it is now with, with our own little advertising device in our pocket. You know, you just say a word, and next thing you know, it's, it's, that thing is like in your feed. You're like, what? I didn't know I needed that. No, oh, I guess I do, Right? It's, it's, this world is trying to shape and conform you into its image, mold you. But we know Romans 12, 2 tells us what? Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We're not to look like this world. God says, you know, I'm taking it out. I'm, I'm getting rid of this. Ephesians 5 even tells us that, that Christ, the King, is coming back for a church that is without spot or wrinkle or blemish. Holy perfect. You see, part of God's plan of salvation, we oftentimes think of salvation as just kind of the whole justification side. The easiest way to think of justification is just break the word down, justified. You've been justified. It just simply means this. It's it's just as if I'd never sinned at all. That's kind of the easiest way, and that's salvation. That's part of God's plan of salvation is that he has come and we've been forgiven, we've been restored, and through his sacrifice on the cross, our sins have been blotted out, the word tells us. The slate has been wiped clean. What a beautiful thing. And Christ's righteousness literally has been credited to our account. But salvation is more than just justification. It's also sanctification. Sanctification, another big kind of word. Sanctification is basically the process of being made holy, of being made more like Jesus. Being, instead of shaped and conformed into the image of this world, being shaped and conformed into the image of Christ. 
You see, God, salvation doesn't just impact our record, right? We're not just declared holy. It also purifies our heart. That, that verse that I read in Colossians 2 about the, the sins, our record of wrongs, our charges, our scroll being nailed to the cross, in that same passage in Colossians chapter 2, it talks about how God actually says He circumcises our heart. He cuts out, He literally cuts out those things in our heart, in our life, that are of evil influence. And then what does He do? He cuts that out of us, and then what does He plant within us? His Holy Spirit. He puts His Spirit in us to give us a new nature. Now, how many of you know you know, if you've become a follower of Jesus, you've had the circumcision of the heart. There's been the cutting away of the evil nature. But how many of you know that that old nature doesn't just disappear? Any of you are aware of any? Yeah, any of you? There's like two of us, three of us, four, great. Right, we know that. The old nature doesn't just disappear. In fact, the old nature likes to come around sometimes. I, 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 it's the flesh and the spirit, this war that battles within each and every one of us that tries to live for Jesus. I remember um, when I was a youth pastor, actually, hearing a great illustration. It just simplifies it so well that it's kind of like, you know, the flesh or the spirit. What's going to win in my life? Well, it's quite obvious. You can know what's going to win in your life because it's kind of like having two dogs. One's a black dog. We'll say that represents the flesh. And then another dog you have is a white dog, and we'll say that represents the spirit. And you only ever feed the black dog. What's going to happen? The black dog's going to get strong and healthy and grow, and the white dog is going to eventually die. I mean, it's just, it doesn't get more simple. So what are we feeding in our lives? The old nature, the, the flesh, or the spirit? And this image that is given us here is that showing us that God has done his part. He's removed the sin. He's removed it from your life. He's circumcised. Cut it out. He's cut it out. But the thing is this. Only, only we can allow it back in. He's done his part. We need to do our, do our part. Right? He supernaturally gets the stork to remove the sin from the land. But only we can allow it to come back in. You know, and I think about even as a new believer, perhaps, you remember this. When, when Christ came alive in your life, probably some of those things of your past, you'd be like, I used to love that. I don't love that anymore. I used to love watching that. I don't love watching that anymore. I, I used to love the taste of that. I don't love the taste of that. You, your life changes, doesn't it? There's a new nature that's put inside of you. And you maybe, maybe you've gradually let some things kind of creep back in. And it's like, I, I remember when I first started walking for Jesus, I was, I didn't want that. Now I want it. What? It's the flesh and the spirit. What are you feeding? What are you allowing back into your life? Because he says, I'm going to take it out. And it's your job to keep it out. So to prepare for the king, God deals with the sinner. Secondly, he deals with the sin. And thirdly, we see this, he deals with those opposed to the king. So this is the eighth, the final night vision of Zechariah begins in chapter 6. It says, Again I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, four chariots came out from between two mountains, and the mountains were mountains of bronze. Now, these are specific mountains, these two mountains. Um, other translations actually say between the two mountains, so they're very specific, what it's pointing to. And, and most scholars, um, I, all the commentaries that I read, basically pointed out that these two mountains, any Israelite or Jew would know, well, that the two mountains would be the Mount of Olives, and then the, the Temple Mount, or, or, or Mount Moriah. And so we're told that these chariots come from between these two mountains. Between those two mountains, the Temple Mount, uh, Mount Moriah, and, and um, the Mount of Olives, is a certain valley. Do you know what valley that is? Anyone know what valley runs between those two mountains? It's the Kidron Valley. Okay, so the Kidron Valley. It's also known, it's the same valley as known as the Valley of Jehoshaphat. 
Okay, so they're the same thing. The Kidron Valley and the Valley of Jehoshaphat, they're the same. They run be- it runs between those two mountains. Now, Jehoshaphat means Jehovah is judge. That's what it means. Jehovah is judge. So this is the valley of God's judgment. That's where these chariots ride out from. And which kind of makes sense because we're told, what are these mountains made of? Bronze. They're not dirt. They're bronze. That's the crazy thing. You think it'd be made of dirt, but they're made of bronze. And bronze in scripture is a symbol of what? Anybody know? Judgment. Bronze is a symbol of judgment. In fact, in the temple, um, there was a specific altar where the sacrifices would be made. What, What kind of altar was it? The bronze altar. The bronze altar. It was a symbol, again, signifying that judgment upon sin was made upon that bronze altar. That's where sins were judged. Well, now we're given some details about the horses. So this is, we're told that these chariots go out between these two mountains through this valley, and they're sent to judge, really, is what's going on. So now we learn about the horses, verse 2. The first chariot had red horses, the second black horses, the third white horses, and the fourth chariot dappled horses, all of them strong. Now, does this ring a bell? Do, do some of you remember? It's all on the same night. None of us, we, we haven't slept yet, okay? The first vision. Do you remember what the first vision was about? The four horses. These angels that were out on patrol. And do you remember the horses were the same? The same kind of color. And so it's very similar. But there is a difference here. What's the big difference between the first vision and this vision? The first vision had angels on horses out on patrol, but this vision has something different in it. Chariots. Chariots. Yes, chariots. That's exactly what the difference is. So when we think chariots, we think Ben-Hur. Right? We think this chariot and this guy riding around, you know, he's got a whip and you know, maybe a little boner. A chariot of their day, don't think chariot. Think something more like this. I've got a picture for you guys here. That's what a chariot would have been. Okay, a tank or, or even something like this, like, like a fighter jet. That's what chariots of those day were equivalent to. They were very, very, they were, they were weapons of mass destruction in a lot of ways. They were very hard to defend against. And so we see that it would appear that these chariots or these tanks, you could say, they're being sent out to judge. The first, in the first vision, they were sent out to patrol just to see what's going on. These ones are sent out specifically to bring judgment. Verse 4, then I answered and said to the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? And the angel answered and said to me, These are going out to the four winds of heaven after presenting themselves before the Lord of all the earth. The chariot with the black horses goes toward the north country. The white ones go after them, and the dappled, which can also be spotted or pale in color, those ones go toward the south country. Then the strong horses came out, and they were impatient to go and patrol the earth. And he said, Go patrol the earth. So they patrolled the earth. Then he cried to me, Behold, those who go toward the north country have set my spirit at rest in the north country. What on earth is going on here? Basically, these tanks are going out. They're going out to some different areas on earth to do God's business. And in fact, the last verse tells us that it actually has set his spirit at rest, which is just a phrase or a a, a Hebrew way of saying, the New Living Translation puts it this way, they have vented my anger. They vented my anger. The New American Standard Bible says this, they have appeased my wrath in the north country. Now, who was in the north country? Anybody know? No, it wasn't Canada. <laughs> the north country, we are, yes, we are the strong, the true north strong and free. But, but uh, and when, in scripture, when anything is relating north, when any directions are given in scripture, it's always in relation to Jerusalem. North, south, east, west. It doesn't matter who you are in the world, the map revolves around Jerusalem. That's how, that's how it works with God in Scripture. So north of Jerusalem, you would have hit Assyria, which was then taken over by 
Babylon. And what does God say here? He says, I've sent out my chariots, my tanks have gone out, and they have judged. And they've been judged. He says, my spirit is now at rest. They've vented my anger against Assyria and Babylon. Of course, Assyria was taken by Babylon. Then Babylon didn't last forever. It was only like 100 years long, that empire. And then who came in after Babylon? History lesson. Yeah, Persia, the Medo-Persian Empire. So they came in, of course, it was under the Medo-Persian Empire, under King Cyrus, that the, the, the Israelites experienced freedom, even favor, not just freedom, but favor. They were actually allowed to go back to Jerusalem. And in fact, they were even, if you read other uh, letters, it says that they, even, they were even given money to go back. Ezra and Nehemiah talks about this, how they actually had the blessing of King Cyrus on their lives. Yet only 42,000 of millions went back, right? So God's saying this, the north country has been taken care of. I've judged them. There's peace there. But then we also saw chariots, interesting, because then he also mentions in that passage that chariots go a different direction. They also go to the south. Who was in the south of Israel, of Jerusalem? It would be Egypt, another great enemy. And you know what God's saying? They're going there too. You're okay. I'm taking care of all your enemies. There's no mention of west or east, which is kind of interesting. Um, one commentary that I read pointed out it's likely because on the west of, of Jerusalem would have been the Mediterranean, which at that time there was no fear of any enemies coming from the west. And on the east of Jerusalem would have been the Syrian desert. And so again, enemies either went through the north or the south. That's where they all came from. And so God is saying, listen, it's at peace. I've taken care of those people. He's basically saying, listen, the coast is clear. I've judged your enemies. You can get back to building. That's kind of the whole idea here. Because God's trying to communicate, listen, I will always judge. I'll always deal with the nations that are opposed to you, his people, and to him. You know, this vision really communicates in, in many ways God's total dominion over the earth. Northeast, south, and west. God has total control, total dominion. We don't need to fear what's going on in this world, you guys. We do not need to live in fear and be afraid. God is in control. But something interesting, every commentary that I read, every single one, I read like seven or eight this week, they all pointed out as well that these chapters, though, don't just speak about the time then, but also speak to a future, to a time when God will ultimately make an end to sin and make an end to the influence of Babylon. And, and, and almost all the commentaries even correlated these chariots or these horses to the four horsemen of Revelation chapter 6 that, are, that go out to execute judgment on the enemies of God and the enemies of his people. They also point to the fact, the commentaries also pointed this out, that this valley, the specific valley between the two mountains uh, is, is actually um, where this judgment will take place. We know of it as the Battle of Armageddon. You guys have heard the Battle of Armageddon, right? Which, which is actually not the place where the battle will take place. Um, it's actually the staging area, basically, for what's going to happen. But where the actual judgment, where the actual battle will take place, Scripture tells us, is in that valley of Jehoshaphat, the Kidron Valley. Uh, that's where it actually takes place, between the two mountains, where these chariots are going out from. Joel chapter 3, verse 2 tells us this. It says, I will gather the armies of the world into the valley of Jehoshaphat. There I will judge them for harming my people, my special possession, for scattering my people among the nations, and for dividing up my land. So here's the thing. Once sinners are cleaned up, that's the first vision we saw. Once sin is removed and once God's enemies are judged, you can see this kind of end times picture that's going on. This sets everything up for the coming king and the establishment of his kingdom. That's what's happening here. This is kind of a picture that we have. As fourth and finally, we see with the preparation, they're all taken care of. Now the king is crowned. This is how we finish off the chapter. Look at verse 9. And the word of the Lord came to me. The visions are done. Zechariah is probably like, oh, finally I can go to bed. 
Get some rest, right? The visions are done. Zechariah, he now receives a word or an instruction from the Lord. And this is what it was. Take from the exiles Heldai, Tobijah, and Jediah, who have arrived from Babylon, and go the same day to the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. Take from them silver and gold and make a crown. And notice this. Set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. This is really weird. Why would they not set the crown on, who was the governor at that time? We talked about this last week. Zerubbabel, right? They had a perfectly good governor, leader, a descendant, in fact, of the line of David in Jerusalem, helping with the rebuilding. He was the one that was going to finish the building of the temple. But God tells Zechariah, don't put the crown on him. Instead, put the crown on Joshua. What is even more strange is that Joshua was, Joshua was the high priest. And in Israel, high priest, the, the, the role of priest and king were to be very separate. Never in Israel's history had any priest ruled in any kind of way. They never were crowned. They never ruled in any kind of way. In the same way, a king was never to be a priest. In fact, the one time in Scripture where we see king, it was King Uzziah. He tries to, to take the censer and he tries to do priestly duties. He is judged by God very harshly. He's stricken with leprosy from that moment on for the rest of his life because they were to be very separate offices. They were, they were never to be together. And so what is going on here? Why is, what's happening? He says, place the crown on Joshua the high priest. Look at verse 12. And then say to him this, declare this. He says, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold the man whose name is the branch for he shall branch out from his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord, and shall bear royal honor, and shall sit and rule on his throne. And there shall be a priest on his throne. A priest? <laughs> what? And the council of peace shall be between them both. And this is speaking about between priest and king. There'll be peace. There'll be unity. There'll be harmony between those two roles. And the crown shall be in the temple of the Lord, as a reminder to Helam, Tobijah, Jediah, and Hen, the son of Zephaniah. So he finishes off by basically saying this, place the crown on him, but it's just for a moment, because it's only to be a picture of something else. Take the crown off and then leave it in the temple as a reminder. The crown wasn't to stand him because this was, this was a picture of a different Joshua. Of course, Joshua is the Old Testament Hebrew name. The Greek name, Joshua, do you know what the Greek name is of Joshua? Jesus, Yeshua. Jesus. This is a picture of Jesus is what's going on. This is, in a sense, a prophetic view or play kind of saying, this is going to happen. It's not this Joshua. It's a different Joshua. So it doesn't remain on him. It's just going to remain in the temple. There's actually a number of things that happen here that you could say really point to this. Now, this is stretching it, but I'll start with this one. You could even say that there are three wise men. I know, I know there wasn't three wise men. We don't know for sure. We always say there's three wise men because there was three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So we tend to think there's three wise men. We don't know for sure how many there were. But you can see this picture here of these three wise men come bearing gifts to make a crown for the king. It's the silver and the gold that they bring that makes the crown. Then look at the phrase in verse 12. What does verse 12 say? Somebody read it. Verse 12. You can read. I know you can. What is it? Maybe I'm wrong. Is it verse 12? Okay, sorry, yeah, sorry. Thus says the Lord of hosts. What's it say after that? That's why no one's reading it because they're like, oh, it doesn't apply. The next part, what does it say? The next words. After it says, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold the man. 
depending on your translation. Behold the man. How many of you ever heard that phrase said somewhere? Well, where? Johnny Cash. Johnny, Johnny Cash? Well, someone else said it too. <laughs> Who said behold the man? Not John. No. Who said it? Yeah. Pilate. Pilate said, behold the man, right? Presenting to them Jesus, the suffering servant, Messiah. Only here, only here, this is God's using this to introduce Jesus, the Messiah, the conquering king. That's what's going on here. Also known as the branch. Did you notice that? Capital B in your text. The branch. A number of times. We've already already seen this in Zechariah chapter 3. And we see this again in Isaiah a number of times. We see this again in Jeremiah a number of times. This reference to the branch, which is every time a reference to the Messiah, to the coming Messiah. And we're told that this branch will build a temple. Not this temple, because we were told in chapter 4 who would build this temple. Who would build that temple? No one listens to my sermons, I don't think. We talked about it last week. (laughs) You weren't here. You can watch online. (laughs) Zerubbabel thank you Ethan Zerubbabel he we were told last week that he would be the one that would finish the temple he would start it and he would finish it and so it can't be this this branch this one it's Zerubbabel to finish that one but we're told here that this branch will build a temple he'll build himself and in fact he will sit and rule as priest and king over that temple it's important that we understand this there's a number of temples in Jerusalem the first temple of course was built by who this, I'm asking all these questions because you don't seem to know, and you should. Solomon, thank you. Yes, just shout out the answer. And whenever in doubt, you know what the answer always is. Jesus. Okay, so if you say Jesus, you can't be wrong. It's, it's all good. So, so the first temple was built by Solomon. Of course, it was destroyed by who? Jesus. Jesus. <laughs> oh, you got me. <laughs> okay, so, sorry, it wasn't, yeah. So Jesus, most of the time, Jesus is the right answer. Uh, the first temple that was built by Solomon was not destroyed by Jesus. <laughs> Although he knew it was going to happen, but it was destroyed by, anyone else know? Uh, by Babylon, actually. Yeah, by Babylon. So Assyria came in, took away the southern kingdom, but then it was Babylon that came in and took away the northern kingdom. Um, or sorry, opposite. Uh, I don't know, I'm screwed up. Anyway, Jesus, Jesus. yes, that's right. <laughs> uh, so they, they, Babylon came in and destroyed the temple that Solomon built. The second temple was built by who? Not Jesus. Ethan already told us the answer to this one. Zerubbabel. The first temple temple was built by Solomon. The second temple was built by Zerubbabel. It would later be added onto and even upgraded. Do you remember who upgraded the temple? King Herod. Yeah, he upgraded the temple, made it this elaborate, like, incredible thing, overlaid with gold, just extravagant. Of course, that temple was eventually destroyed by? Not by Jesus. (laughs) By Rome. Someone said Rome. Thank you. It was eventually destroyed by Rome. Do you know the Bible tells us that there's going to be a third temple? There's going to be another temple that will be built. There has to be because the scriptures speak about an antichrist, someone opposed to God that will come and defile that temple. That there'll be sacrifices set up again. Do you know that right now, right now, this very day, it's actually been for a number of years, the, the, the Jews in Jerusalem have a prefabricated temple ready to go. No word of a lie. There's walls. It's like, you know, we have prefabricated homes that they can put up in like days. They've got a prefabricated temple. The walls are all ready to go in a warehouse, ready to be put up. And in fact, they are even training right now people in the sacrificial system again so that they can start sacrifices again. 
You can see that it's end time stuff. It all is set up. This is, needs to take place. And so there will be a temple, again, rebuilt in Jerusalem. But here's the thing. The Bible speaks of even another temple. Another temple. And, oh, you might be thinking as well, how can the temple be, be set up in Jerusalem? Because you know there's something sitting there, a bit of a problem. What is it? The Dome of the Rock that's sitting in Jerusalem. Do you know that it's interesting? Recent archaeology um, has discovered that they think the Dome of the Rock actually doesn't sit where the temple sat. But the Dome of the Rock actually sits where the court of the Gentiles for the temple was. And where the, the, where the um, you can look on Google Earth. I did it. You can look down, you can see the Dome of the Rock. You know where the, they think the temple sat? is just some trees and forest. Isn't that interesting? So they just get, they just get the go-ahead, and all of a sudden, that temple can go up in moments. They can be doing sacrifices again. They, can, they just need someone to come in and bring peace. You can see how it all kind of, you can see it. Scripture's told all of it. But, but Scripture also tells us this, that Revelation and Ezekiel even speaks about another temple that will be built by Jesus when he returns where he will rule and reign as priest and king on earth for a thousand years. Well, he continues now in verse 15. And those who are far off shall come and help to build the temple of the Lord. And you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And this shall come to pass if you will diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. So there's a number of fulfillments actually that take place here. Some partial fulfillments. Obviously, this passage obviously applied to those remnant, those Jews that were in Jerusalem at that time. Obviously, God's giving this word to Zechariah for those that were there in that day. So he's communicating one thing here. He's written to the exiles saying, listen, there will be people still return that are going to help rebuild the temple. Exiles that are still in a far-off land in Babylon that will return and help you build. It also speaks, I think, another fulfillment of it speaks to the fact that even now today, Jesus is building his temple, is he not? We, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. That's what he says. He's building his temple in us. In fact, it says people from far off. Other translations say from distant lands. This is speaking of Gentiles. That's what most think of. It's speaking of Gentiles. And that's what Jesus is doing today. He's building his temple, his church in Jew and Gentile. But the ultimate fulfillment will be when Christ comes again to set up his kingdom on this earth. Jew and Gentile, we're told, from far off, from distant lands, Revelation 21 tells us, will come and bring the glory of the nations to Christ. That's what we're told in Scripture. Isaiah 6 even tells us that the nations will bring their wealth to praise God and for the temple during the kingdom age. And here's the thing. It's not King Charles, it's King Jesus that's coming again. He's coming again. And, and you need to, are you ready? Are you prepared for the king to come? Are you ready? Thanks for listening to the podcast from Duncan Pentecostal Church, located here in Duncan, British Columbia, on beautiful Vancouver Island. At DPC, we believe in teaching the whole Bible to build whole believers who can impact the whole world. For more information about us, find us online at www.duncanchurch.com or find us on Facebook and YouTube by searching Duncan Pentecostal Church. Have a great day.